This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. An arrest has been made in the case of the Idaho Four murders and the free speech implications of the growing trend of online sleuthing. This is the Propaganda Report. I am Brad Binkley. Happy New Year's Eve. Hope you guys are safe and you have a good time. As I mentioned, an arrest has been made in the Idaho Four murders investigation, and that's what we're going to start with today. Then I'm going to talk about this growing trend of online sleuthing that goes on to try and solve cases like this and why this Idaho Four murders case was ripe for becoming an obsession for online sleuths, true crime enthusiasts, both good and bad. And then we're going to round it out by talking about the possible free speech implications of all of this. So if you're not familiar with the Idaho four murders. Four University of Idaho students were murdered on November 13th between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. in their off-campus home in Moscow, Idaho. They were killed, according to police, using a fixed blade knife, and there was no signs of forced entry into the house. And up until today, even still today, because we don't know all the details, this case was a mystery. Police had no suspects up until they arrested the person today, at least according to them. They obviously did have that person in mind. They just weren't leading that on. And they had no murder weapon. In fact, according to police during the press conference earlier today after the arrest, they still have not found the murder weapon. And throughout this entire investigation, this happened November 13th, about six weeks ago, there was a lot of people being accused of being the killer by a con artist online, posing as online sleuths and independent investigators on YouTube and TikTok. I saw at least a dozen different private citizens accused None of those doing the accusing named the actual person who was ultimately arrested today, meaning that in all likelihood, unless another arrest is made and maybe everybody in the town was in on it, then the accusations made by these online sleuths slash con artists were false accusations of private citizens being made in public forums to sometimes millions of people and more on that later on in the show. But the suspect is 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger, I believe is how his name is said. They always like to include all three names. Most people have three names. You don't get all three of your names said in the media until you kill some people. So if you're seeing all three of your names in the news, then that's probably not a good thing. Koberger was arrested in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains, not too far from Scranton, early this Friday morning, I think around 1 a.m. The SWAT team raided his, I think it was an apartment. That was more than 2,500 miles away from where the murders happened in Moscow, Idaho. However, he is a PhD student at Washington State University in Pullman, which is just eight miles away from Moscow. So he he goes to school right near Moscow, and I guess he lives and was arrested 2,500 miles away. He was apparently pursuing a doctorate in criminal justice, and a man with the same name is also listed, and this is presumed to be him, actually I think this has been confirmed at this point, as having received a Master of Arts in Criminal Justice from DeSales University in Center Valley, PA, earlier this year. 
The suspect also graduated from Northampton Community College with an associate's degree in arts and psychology. And to make things even creepier, Koberger allegedly posted in a Reddit community for former prisoners to ask for help with a research survey about how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. I'm going to show you some of the images of, first of all, here is the guy who is a suspect. I'll, I'll let you get a look at him. That's the guy right there, and maybe it's confirmation bias, but certainly looks like a creepy serial killer. Here is the question he posed in that online Reddit forum, or this is the post that he made. Anyway, and then I'll show you the questions. It says, research participants needed, and this is the criminology student, ex, this is the ex-con and then criminology student forum on Reddit. Hello, my name is Brian, and I am inviting you to participate in a research project that seeks to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. In particular, this study seeks to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout your experience. In the event that your most recent offense was not one that led to a conviction, you may still participate. Additional surveys are included after the open-ended section as to best understand your unique traits. The study should take about 15 to 20 minutes to fully complete. The research has been approved by the DeSales University IRB. Not sure what that is. Must be the department. If you opt to participate, you may terminate participation at any time. And then it has his email, has his name down here at the bottom with his email address, and he calls himself a student investigator. And here are some of the survey questions. And it's on a, an official DeSales University form, it looks like. And the first one here on screen says, how did you accomplish your goal? Please explain what you were thinking, thinking and feeling. I'm assuming that is when committing a crime. And another one here says, before making your move, how did you approach the victim or target? Please detail what you were thinking and feeling. And then how did you leave the scene? Interesting. I think there was four. Or not. Oh, yeah. Okay. The fourth one or the first one. How did you travel to and enter the location that the crime occurred? All relevant information to the crime that he committed. Okay. It's also being reported by Brian Enton of News Nation, who has been on the ground covering a lot of the stuff there. He's done a pretty good job. I don't know much else about him, but I like the work that he's done with this. That while in custody, Koberger asked if anyone else was arrested with a quiet blank stare. Is that him suggesting that someone else was involved, an accomplice, or is that somebody who has a criminology background messing with police? Police did not disclose a motive or what led them to their suspect or if the victims knew the suspect. The probable cause affidavit, which details the reasons for his arrest, is sealed and will not be released until he returns to Idaho. Because the suspect was arrested in Pennsylvania, he has the opportunity to waive extradition and return to Idaho voluntarily. If he chooses not to return voluntarily, Moscow police will have to initiate extradition proceedings through the governor's office and the, I believe is the chief of police today during the press conference after the arrest said that if we do that, if they have to initiate that process, it can take a while for him to get there. And he also expressed a little bit of concern uh, about that whole process. At least it seemed that way to me during the press conference. I imagine the guy is not going to waive extradition. Maybe I'm wrong. A source with knowledge of the case said that genetic genealogy helped investigators identify the suspect. I remember them saying they were going to do that early on. 
what this is basically is the short of it. It's it's when DNA is put through a public database like 23andMe to find potential matches for the suspects, family members, often a distant family member that they then backtrack, trace back to the individual. So if you have somebody who's done 23andMe in your family, then you are in a database that could potentially be used in a criminal investigation at some point. A TikToker who seems to have gone to high school with the suspect and her videos seem legit. I don't think they're online anymore. I watched them earlier. Says that this guy used to be a heroin addict and he had anger issues. He was clean last time she saw him, which I believe was around 2017. But there's just a lot of questions that emerge based on the information that is continuing to come out. And police during uh, the press conference they held yesterday didn't really answer too many questions at all because it's still an ongoing investigation. And the things that they did reveal were more eyebrow raising than clarifying. For instance, they revealed that they still don't have a murder weapon. They asked the public to continue sending in any tips that they think that they may have. And they wouldn't say whether or not they were looking for other suspects. And the house where the murders happened, while it's been cleaned at least partially, is still considered an open crime scene. So even with a suspect in custody who is presumed innocent until proven guilty, according to our justice system, even with that person in custody, this case is one that still begs to be speculated about, which is where online sleuths come into the story. If it's easy to speculate about the case now, imagine how easy it was to speculate about it for the past six weeks when, according to police, there were no suspects, no murder weapon had been found, and there was not enough publicly available information about the case to make the story make sense, yet there was just enough information about the case publicly available to intrigue everybody and make everyone think they could solve it on their own. Just look at some of the elements of the story that the public was told prior to the suspect being arrested yesterday. I get, and notice the gaps in information, information and the curiosity that it peaks. I gave you the basic facts. Four University of Idaho students murdered between 3 and 4 a.m. in their slightly off-campus home. At the time of the murder, there were two other roommates in the house on the first floor. The murders happened on the second and third floor of the house. Those roommates were asleep and unharmed. And that's basically what we know about that situation there. There was also a dog in the house that was unharmed and did not bark. Basically, all we've been told about that, that comes off as a bit odd and it raises questions that makes you want to figure them out. How about another perplexing set of facts? The 911 call was not placed until around eight or so hours after the murders had happened, just before noon. The call was made from one of the surviving roommates' phones, but not necessarily made by one of these surviving roommates. Apparently, other people had been called to the house before 911 was called. And police have not told us who made that 911 call, but they have told us that the 911 call was made about an unconscious person. So that's what paramedics thought they were getting into when they showed up to the crime scene. Now that makes you go, wait a minute, what? There's a lot of questions that, that you, you want to ask to try and make sense of that, which leads to your imagination running wild and coming up with theories until police fill in the gaps, which they still have not yet. Here's another. The whereabouts of two of the victims, Zayna and Ethan, on the night of the murders between the hours of roughly 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. are unknown, according to police. That's what they say anyway. The two were last seen at a party at the Sigma Chi house, which is in walking distance from where the murders occurred. And again, 
They were last seen there between 9 and 10. And then somehow, despite modern technology, cell phones, and the fact that they were in the middle of a bustling college town where there were people everywhere, no one seems to know where they were to have seen them until they arrived again at home at 1.45 a.m. That's a big gaping reason for our brains to come up with some wild ideas about what happened during that block of time to those two. Let's continue. The two other victims, Madison and Kaylee, appear on a nearby food truck's live stream around 1.40 a.m., I believe, after leaving a downtown bar. In the video, you see the, the two walk into frame, and then behind them, shortly thereafter, you see someone who is now known as Hoodie Guy come into frame and lurk behind them, seemingly watching them from a distance for the 10 minutes that they are waiting there for their food. And then when they get their food and they walk off camera to the rideshare vehicle they had called, we see Hoodie Guy seemingly follow them off camera. He must be the killer. Why haven't police arrested him? Someone better get on YouTube, dox him very quickly to make sure he doesn't go anywhere. Everybody harass the guy. Except the problem is another video was later discovered by an online sleuth. The good that the online sleuths have done in this case has not gotten much attention. Only the small few who are ruining it for everybody else. And this was a surveillance video that showed the two girls walking down a sidewalk from the bar to the food grub truck. And walking with the girls in that video was none other than Hoodie Guy. What? Why? Why would they be walking with Hoodie Guy? He's the killer. Except that he's not. Apparently, the girls knew him, and he was walking with them to help make sure that they got home safely. And what did he get for his chivalry? He was rewarded by having con artists convince tens of thousands of people online that he's a homicidal maniac who killed four college students. And let's not forget about the 10 late-night phone calls that Kaylee and Maddie made to Kaylee's ex-boyfriend after they got home, none of which did he answer. The first call being made around 2.30 a.m. and the last one being made just before 3 a.m., right before that 3 to 4 a.m. window when police say the murders occurred. That must solve the case. It must be the ex-boyfriend. If the police aren't going to go arrest him, somebody needs to go to his house right now, shout him down, and threaten him while live streaming it on YouTube and telling people to smash like, subscribe, and send in those donations. These are the types of things that are going on in Moscow. I should clarify, I'm being sarcastic in the way I'm talking about this. Nobody should do any of these things to anybody in Moscow. I'm just mocking what these idiots or these con artists, I mean, they know what they're doing. It's the people who are giving them money that they're... I don't want to call them idiots because they're just so their curiosity's peaked and they're just appealing to that thirst to fill in those information gaps. It's information gap theory in action. And they're being taken advantage of and they're they're really making the lives of these people very difficult. No one should harass these people at all. We don't know what happened. We don't have all the information. It's like trying to put together a hundred piece puzzle with only 70 pieces. You're not going to be able to do it. There's other odd facts about the case, too. I'm not going to go through all of them. The point is not to go through all the minutiae and details of the case. It's just to highlight that this case, with the information gaps, with the curiosity and the intrigue, is primed for online sleuthing and con artists and operatives to step in, fill in those information voids, and take advantage of people and just do awful things to innocent people. I mean, there's probably not a person in Moscow, Idaho, who, who was not accused of, of being the killer here. Just off the top of my head, the roommates were accused. The frat, Sigma Chi as a whole, and some of the individual members were accused. Multiple neighbors who made the mistake of giving interviews to journalists who came to their doors in the aftermath of the killings have been accused. At least two people seen on the food grub truck video have been accused. The father of one of the victims has been accused. The ex-boyfriend of one of the victims has been accused. The local bartender, the landlord of the house, the son of the landlord of the house, anyone who's been in that house to a party, people who have lived in the house in the past all have been accused online. 
smeared as murderers. There was a felon who happened to live within a two-mile radius of the house who was accused, whose wife begged the person accusing him to just stop accusing her husband. The YouTuber con artist said, I'm not going to stop First Amendment, which we'll get back to that in a minute. Whether he's a con artist or an operative, the impact's probably going to be the same. That same YouTuber pulled up a list of the sex offender registry in Idaho, Moscow, and uh, Moscow, Idaho, excuse me. That would be a very different place, Idaho, Moscow. And he just started accusing one by one these sex offenders. He'd make a video implying that they're guilty of the murders to which the people in the chats and comments would then with certainty, say that they were the killers and the murderers. This guy making the videos of the sex offenders knew that every video he made, he'd get more donations and subscribers. So he was just looking for people to accuse. And he cashed in on it, man. I think he also was planning on just accusing as many people as possible so that he could go back later and say, I got it right. I knew who the killer was all along and then call for more donations. But he didn't happen to pick the right person. What he did instead was he went back and he changed the titles of some of his old videos and he put the person who was arrested yesterday's name in the videos or in the titles and then he put a new screen image that had a picture of the person they arrested yesterday and every third or fourth video from five days ago two weeks ago to make it look like he was on top of it by people who just scroll through i mean he's a notorious con artist who's been in prison for conning people who's doing the same thing he's always done and when people point that out in the chats and comments the people who are being conned and giving their money to this guy who's lying to them and causing them to harass innocent people, they are then attacking the people who are trying to say, hey, you're being conned. It's like cognitive dissonance in action. It's extraordinary. And when you transfer that to just the mainstream media and politics broadly, it's a parallel, just in a different context. Oh, there's also a professor at the university who had never even met the victims who was accused based on a tarot card reading by a TikToker, a TikToker who is now being sued for defamation due to these continued accusations. We'll go over that here in a second. You see how it works. Intrigue, information gaps, con artists step in, capitalize by filling in the void with sensational claims, false accusations, and literally fabricated audio and video evidence in one case here. I mean, I can't make a comment or a question about a, a past election that will go unnamed without getting a strike on my account. Meanwhile, someone is fabricating audio screams saying he discovered the victim screaming at the time of the murders showing up first in the YouTube search results cashing in. We see what they prioritize. Here's a video from News Nation talking about all of this harassment of private citizens and public forums and in person that's been going on that I'm talking about here. TikTok posts with the hashtag Idaho murders have more than 90 million views. Reddit forums with 27,000 members and private Facebook groups, each with tens of thousands of people, are all talking about the Idaho murders and are ripe with wild speculation. Many delving into Kaylee, Zana, Madison, and Ethan's own social media accounts. But these crowdsourced investigations can also ruin lives as they track down so-called suspects on their own. First, it was the young man in the hoodie seen at the food truck in a video that surfaced days after the murders. Police were flooded with questions about who he was. I think a lot of people were curious about that person. Um, we were able to identify him. 
Police have since cleared that man, but online sleuths soon turned their attention to a new suspect, a neighbor of the victims named Jeremy Reagan. He's a third year law student at the University of Idaho and gave a TV interview about the comings and goings at the house where the kids were murdered. He admits that he'd given a nervous smile while talking about the crime. Some viewers took issue and made him a target. Soon he moved from target to suspect and it was open season on the internet. People online have just been ruthless. They went through and gone through all of my social media history over the past decade, partly because of all the reports that people had sent in about me in the interview I did. Reagan has spoken with the police and even volunteered his DNA. But when he didn't hear back from the officers, he simply went to the station himself and gave police a sample. But as amateur investigators continue to dig deep into his personal life, contacting his friends and his family, Jeremy is now so concerned that he carries a pistol for protection. Amateur detectives have had some success before. During the Gabby Petito case, social media hashtags exploded with billions of views. It was social media users that put many of the pieces together and gave police strong clues as to where to look. Back in Moscow, Idaho, with every day that the four murders go unsolved, the online investigative community is sure to grow each wanting to be the cyber sleuth that unlocks the mystery and solves the crime. But at what cost to the professional investigators and to the public? A couple of things to notice about that clip. The real consequences that private citizens are experiencing because of what these people pretending to be online sleuths and investigators are doing, which will be the basis of defamation claims if they choose to sue them like the professors doing to the tiktoker this is kind of new territory in this digital world that we live in now that will be the subject of legislation in the future which will determine some free speech parameters online and also the framing by news nation of what online sleuths just in general are doing to highlight the consequences and the negative aspects of online sleuthing omitting the beneficial stuff that they have done in this case all these problems that the bad actors have been causing in this case even led to police coming out and accusing online sleuths broadly of interfering in the investigation to the point of where the police chief made a statement where he said, look, online sleuths could be criminally prosecuted if they go too far. I mean, he gave him a warning. Here's a video of the chief of police issuing that warning. In some cases, we're hearing that people are borderline being harassed by speculation and rumors out there. What are police doing about it? Well, what we want people to know is, is that uh, individuals who are being harassed in these, this situation, now people need to be careful because some of it's happening online, some of it's happening through phone calls and in person, and uh, people could be charged possibly in the future if it continues to a point where it reaches a criminal um, element. What can people do to help that situation? I think, number one, just call us anytime that there's any of that happening so that we can um, deal with that immediately. And what about the information? What is being done to make sure the information that is out there is not causing speculation? You know, there's been a lot of speculation and rumors. And what we want to say is, is we're the official source of information. We want people to um, pay attention to what we're putting out there because that is accurate information. And anything that comes from other sources um, is either rumor or speculation. And we want to put an end to that as soon as possible. They're the official source of information. 
Anything else is speculation and rumors. And in this case, with all the harassment going on, I think a lot of people understand where they're coming from. But when you look at the parallels, that's also the type of statements that are made by the mainstream media overlords and Klaus Schwab and all of them. The authoritative sources of information are who we are to trust, while the rumors and the independent people reporting on it should not be trusted. There there is a parallel there that can be transferred if you create a standard and a precedent in cases like this to censor free speech online. I, I, I I think that that's where this is going when it comes to online sleuthing more generally. As those watching can see, the sun has shifted and is now coming through the light. There's no blinds here, so kind of hard to see me very well. So I might just throw up the image for the rest of the show. I look like such a redneck with this hat on and a goatee. And I mean, look at this. I just look like, I look like go dogs on Saturday all day long, all year long. Go dogs. Anyway, News Nation said it, that online sleuthing is, is ruining people's lives. Crowdsourced online investigations ruining people's lives. However, it's useful to them as well. So they need it to stay. And this case story and other stories like it in the future will give them the framework and justification to clamp down on who can do it. So maybe there'll be some sort of badge you can wear as an official online sleuth. In fact, I have a feeling that badge might say Bellingcat on it. More, I'm going to wrap up the show talking about Bellingcat very briefly, but before we get to that, I want to continue with this line of thought here and talk about the way online sleuths are being reported on, in this case, compared to the way they were portrayed in two recent mainstream media stories in which the impact of these sleuths also came into focus, which by the way, online sleuths are not one and the same. They're very, very different. There's people who are very good at it, do great work, and there's con artists, and there's people who are a little bit naive and buy into the sensationalism of the con artist and end up spreading what would be called misinformation versus the con artist disinformation. But there's people who do a great job of it. They're just not getting any attention here. So those previous stories were the story of the FBI's January 6th investigation to find those who were there and committed crimes at the Capitol on that fateful day, and also the story of the search for Gabby Petito. Unlike this story, in those cases, online sleuths were celebrated by the media. They were deemed essential to the success of the investigations. And in fact, in the case of Gabby Petito, as you heard in that clip briefly, They were credited with leading authorities to her body and solving the case. And in the case of the January 6th investigations, the self-proclaimed sedition hunters who scoured their Trump-supporting friends, family, and neighbors' Facebook pages looking for any reason to report them to the FBI were praised by both the media and, obviously, the FBI. But here's the thing. In both of those cases, there were also false accusations made. I mean, I I would argue the January 6th is like a lot of false accusations, but I, I don't even like throwing this case in there, they just put this high on the list of success stories of online sleuthing. In both of these cases, there was false accusations made. And especially in the case of Gabby Petito, there was fabricated evidence by a con artist exploiting the same thing that was exploited here, video evidence this time. So while the negative side of it existed in both of those cases as well, it was ignored by the media, which highlighted only the the good side of online sleuthing and why we need it and and the benefits it brings to society. While in the case of the Idaho four, it highlighted all the negative stuff, despite the fact that just like in those other cases, there have been 
online sleuths who have provided helpful tips and uncovered like that second video I mentioned earlier of the two walking from the bar. They've done a lot of great work here, but it's just being downplayed to highlight the negative. It's basically like the reporting on those first two cases announced to the world, here is why we need online sleuthing, while the reporting on this case is saying, and here is why the government must regulate and control it. Obviously, it's not going anywhere when we know the FBI can use it to get Americans to alert them to their neighbors who question authority so that the FBI can then round them up and make examples of them. Of course, they're going to keep it around. They just want to be able to control the avenues of research and who can do it. There's probably going to reach a point. I'm not saying this case is it, but it won't be long before there's probably like a defamation case against an online sleuther that's like the equivalent of the Alex Jones Sandy Hook defamation case, which I like Alex Jones, by the way. I think Alex Jones does a lot of great work. I'm just saying that they're looking for reasons to shut people up who question things online. And this is another avenue, this sleuthing angle that they're, I think they're attempting to accomplish this with. Look here at this defamation case against this TikToker who is accusing a professor at the University of Idaho of being the killer. This TikToker, the basic story is this, has made video after video saying that this professor was having a sexual relationship with Ethan, the guy who was killed, and that she either killed them herself or she hired someone to kill them. And the teacher, professor, says that she's never even met these students and has sent two cease and desist letters to this TikToker who has, despite that, continued to press on and accuse this woman of doing it, and the woman is now suing for defamation. But listen to the way that this legal expert, this professor of law, is talking about the implications of this case here. Actually, before I play that for you, we're going to button up the show right after that with a quick comment on Bellingcat and its role in all of this. And then going to go into the DMBXR, do a, a quick little overview of the specifics of what the guy who fabricated audio and this other online con artist is doing. I'm going to show you what they're doing exactly and show you the cognitive dissonance in the XR. So if you want access to that, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report, subscribe there today. And what you will get is you'll get that subscriber only portion of the show. And you also get the DMB with ads removed and you get it put together with a subscriber only portion to one RSS feed that you can put into just about any podcast player that you listen to. All right. This is a constitutional lawyer and law professor at the University of Pennsylvania giving his thoughts on the implications of this defamation lawsuit and of this emerging trend of online sleuthing that is a part of our our new reality. This is a bad situation. Um, it's bad for the professor who is having these accusations made against her. It's also bad for the person who's making the accusations, who's subjecting herself to significant legal exposure. So it suggests to me that social media has introduced new dangers in our society. And we should maybe be thinking about ways to mitigate those. Social media has introduced new dangers in our society, and we should think about ways to mitigate those. That's the exact line of reasoning that we hear in the political realm and conversations about mis- and disinformation, which we know is often just an attempt to suppress inconvenient truths that question their narrative. They're just It's like they're trying to get there in a different way here that people are a little bit unsuspecting of. I find that to be an interesting point because I think people don't understand or may not realize or in some cases may not care uh, that what you say on social media is the same as you writing it in the newspaper. It's the same as you posting it uh, anywhere or speaking it. 
this is a forum where somebody's reputation can be damaged. It's almost like TikTok to me is the wild, wild west here. It, people are have gone crazy with this case. Talk to me a little bit about what your responsibilities are as anyone posting on social media. And what do they do to the wild, wild west? They tamed it with laws and punishments. Well, as you said, it's the same. So communication over social media, communication over the internet, that's real. And I think probably everyone is familiar with the phenomenon where people are less inhibited posting online. They are meaner than they would be normally. They're more extreme. And if you're anonymous and you're just flaming people anonymously, then I guess it's limited. And the harm that, that can follow is limited. But if you're doing this publicly and you're disseminating your speech to millions of people, potentially, um, you could be causing massive reputational harm. And the things that are being said on these TikToks are certainly defamatory. Um, you know, they're allegations of involvement in a crime and allegations of professional misconduct. So there's a potential for very serious reputational harm. Um, and then, as I said, you can't just say that about someone if it's not true. And I know of no evidence suggesting that it is true. So there's very significant potential defamation liability for the speaker here too. Of course. And I think that's going to be the case potentially with a lot of other people making accusations as well. So I think this could be the first of many cases. Now here's this same professor talking about how there used to be gatekeepers, gatekeepers, not gatekeepers, gatekeepers. And you know, this is sort of the, the problem that I started out with. Um, the thing about social media is it makes everyone a publisher. It makes everyone able potentially to reach a very wide audience. And we used to have gatekeepers. So I could have, you know, 20 years ago, written an op-ed accusing some private individual of involvement in some notorious crime. You know, say the O.J. Simpson case, I could have said, this professor somewhere is the real killer. And I could have sent that out to the New York Times, but they never would have published it. So it never would have reached a lot of people, you know, my own musings about the case. Um, but now certain things go viral on TikTok and it's hard to predict why. And someone coming up with accusations that don't really seem to have any foundation can suddenly reach millions of people. And that is the problem that they are obviously going to attempt to solve. How do they reinsert gatekeepers controlling the allegedly open sourced world of online investigations or sleuthing as they call it and they have a reason there's a reason they call it that i'll tell you that in a second and finally this is the last clip here he talks about in this clip what protections the first amendment does give people online on youtube social media well does anybody have a first amendment right to go on social media and talk about this case i mean where do you think she might have crossed the line well you can talk about the case and you know you can even say you know, I'm going to flip a coin, and if it comes up heads, I think that means that this person is the murderer. As long as you're pretty transparent about what you're doing and you're saying what the basis for your conclusions are. But, you know, she's putting out as assertions of fact claims that this woman is involved in the murders, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. It's a very strong defamation case against her. So you think in, in terms of uh, it was the idea that if she had came out and said, you know, I just suspect that it might be the professor, that might have been something different because there are people online right now who have a ton of different theories and a ton of different speculation. And they're pointing the finger and they're saying, look at this piece of evidence. What would be your message to all those people out there? 
Well, you know, I guess I would say be careful, but you know, some of that is protected. If you're like, here are the pieces of evidence and here's what I think. Or if you're saying X percent of the time, it's the boyfriend, you know, usually it's the husband who kills the wife, something that's based on statistics about actual cases. All of that is protected. What you can't do is make factual claims about a specific person without a reasonable basis for them. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any basis at all for this. It's just just sort of wild accusations. That was an important clip, I think, because that highlighted what the question revolves around when it comes to whether or not there's a legitimate basis to sue someone for defamation. Factual claims without a reasonable basis, with this case being the extreme obvious example of it's based on tarot cards and no real factual basis that could ever be admitted in court. So that seems to be a slam dunk case. Now, the person might not have any money to, to win or to give if, they, if she does lose the judgment. But moving forward, as they do continue to push for some sort of control and, leg and legislation over or regulation over who can say what online, that question of factual claims and reasonable basis. I'm guessing that the source of information is a factor in that determination. And if that's the case, then those who are deemed to be credible, authoritative sources, the gatekeepers of the world, so to speak, that we are supposed to get our information from, or the official fact checkers of the world, that they could be deemed the legitimate sources to base a claim on or an accusation when it comes to a defamation claim, while non-authoritative alternative sources of media, so to speak might not meet that standard. So you see the parallels continue here from the political world to uh, this slightly different online sleuthing true crime world, which we all know, by the way, that the, quote, authoritative sources in the political world are, are just the, the propagandist is what they are. And that all of that is an attempt to silence the people who reveal the, the true good information. This is like a backdoor way to silence alternative media. It really is. The parallels are all there. And there is an official standard setter in the world of, quote, online sleuthing, which why do they call it online sleuthing, by the way? Because it's just open source intelligence investigation. That's what most people call it. But this new word is being injected and it's being branded by, well, that's because Bellingcat calls it online sleuthing. In fact, Bellingcat, if you can see this page or this uh, book cover here, here, there it is. It says on that book cover, we are Bellingcat, global crime, online sleuths, and the bold future of news. They are the self-proclaimed global online sleuth crime stoppers. And that's what this book is about. And this book is about standards. It's about training. It's about how to inject this type of thought into news media around the world. And this, I believe, is why they are calling it online sleuthing, because they want to brand all of it under that umbrella so that when Bellingcat which is funded by the Open Society Foundation, George Soros's Open Society Foundation, and is also believed by many to be a to be a front organization for the CIA and Western intelligence because of their because they receive funding from the National Endowment for Democracy and they partner with them on a lot of operations. An organization that very tight with the CIA and other intelligence operations. This is a globalist organization masquerading as a decentralized group of online sleuths. You're not a group of ragtag online sleuthers if you're funded by George Soros. Okay, just like Stacey Abrams is not a poor black woman struggling to get by when she's been funded by George Soros for 10 years to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars, all right? 
These are people pretending to do the things that we do so that they can then set the standards and control who gets to do this, quote, legitimately or, or, or authoritatively. It wouldn't surprise me if Bellingcat is on the badge that you have to have to be an online sleuther and to get the protections that will allow you to then basically lie about people. That's what the mainstream media has. The mainstream media has protections that individuals do not have for the sake of being able to be bold with journalism. There's Supreme Court laws that allows them to go further than individuals would be able to go and for them to not be sued or to be immune from certain lawsuits because of that. I'm guessing there's probably going to be some sort of standard emerging around that worldwide, and Bell and Cat's going to be at the center of setting those standards, which means the CIA and our intelligence operations are grabbing online sleuthing and open source intelligence investigations by the neck is what they're trying to do. All right, guys, that's where I'm going to end the show. Let you chew on that nugget for a little bit, and I hope everybody has a safe New Year's Eve and a happy New Year. We'll talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.